going to get into the Word of God today. Romans chapter 8 is where we're coming from. And, you know, taking a little detour from Eve Redeemed, this is actually a series you guys probably don't even know it, but I've been doing here. So like Pastor E, if he did a four-week series, it would take somewhere around, oh gosh, probably about four weeks to do it. So this is a four-part series. It took me a year, but we're going to get through it today <laughs> by God's grace. So uh, four parts on Romans chapter 8. What an amazing passage of Scripture. But I, I'm going to read it. I know Pastor E usually reads and has us all read, but let me just read it. Uh, in your hearing today, Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 31. What shall we say then to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the power of your word. It's just your word, Lord God. And then, and then you mix in the ap, uh, applying power of the Holy Spirit and you do your work. Lord, we pray that you do that right now as we come before your word, that you would still our hearts, that, Lord, the thousands of things that may be pressing on our minds, Lord, help us to concentrate and, and to look to you right in this time, in these next few moments. Be with us, apply your word to each heart here exactly the way that you as the master surgeon can apply it. And be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's a powerful, powerful section of Scripture, honestly. And we've gone through this, this chapter, which is not only... These verses are not just the culmination of this chapter, but they're really kind of the culmination of Paul's discourse from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 8, where he just lays out the truth of the gospel. 
In the first couple chapters, he lays out the fact that we are all sinners. We are all in need of a Savior. And then he goes on to tell us that there's a way. The way is not the law. The way is not your righteousness. The, the way to, 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 to meet the need that we have as people who have sinned is, is the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ and that alone. He lays that out. And then in, verse, in chapter 6 through 8, he begins to lay out, if that's true, if Christ has done this amazing work on our behalf and we can stand before God in heaven, holy and perfect based on what he's done, not on anything that we've done, then if that's true, then, then the question at the end of chapter 5 is, why then shouldn't we sin that grace would abound? Chapter 6, he says, that's foolishness. How can we who have died to sin still live in it anymore? Right, But we struggle with it, don't we? We struggle between sin and, and, and the work that God is doing in us. And so he begins to explain how it is that we get free from sin. In chapter 7, uh, he tells us that the law is not the way to get free from sin. More rules, more regulations, more thou shalt nots that are laid on you are not going to change you one iota. But at the very end of that chapter, in chapter 7, he says, who Oh, wretched man that I am, who, who, who can save me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So from the beginning, that's the end of chapter 7. He's talking about the one who is able to sanctify us and change us and set us free from sin. And then most of chapter uh, uh, of eight that we've looked through uh, up till now, it, this is the section that talks more about the work of the Holy Spirit explicitly than any other chapter in Scripture. So you have in, in, in from verses one to about uh, uh, 25 or so, numerous, numerous allusions to the Holy Spirit himself, more than in any other uh, portion of Scripture, talks about the Holy Spirit. But then in this last part of Romans 8, he's now talking about the work of Jesus again. And so if you can see it this way, uh, Romans chapter 8 from the end of 7 uh, to, and, and then the end of 8 is talking about Jesus. In the middle, you've got the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's almost like a Holy Spirit sandwich with Jesus on either side. It's like the best triple stuff Oreo you've ever had in your life. Jesus on every side, the Holy Spirit in between. So uh, at the end of this chapter here, he is going to give us amazing assurance of salvation for believers in Christ. So the theme of this last section that we're looking at is the assurance that God gives us because of the conquering Christ. The Holy Spirit who gives us hope based on what we cannot see. The Holy Spirit has given us hope. Earlier in Romans 8, he says, why do you hope for what? You see, you hope for what you don't see, right? So the Holy Spirit's given, this, given us this hope for something we can't see, but it's based on something that we've already seen. That is the finished work of Jesus Christ. So um, we'll, what we'll see in these verses is that as we look at the gospel here, Jesus Christ has not died for you and been raised again and seated at the right hand of the Father so that you can cross your fingers and toes and just hope that maybe somehow, maybe 
by chance, some kind of way, you might be able to one day sneak into the back door of heaven. But, but he's given us uh, his word so that we can know with full assurance that what Christ has finished is finished indeed. Amen. For all of his people, it's done. He has rigged the game. He's rigged the game for us. He, he has fixed the fight. And that's what we're going to see as we go through these verses. So uh, my title for the message today is The Conquering Christ. The Conquering Christ. He has conquered everything we need. So let's begin. We're going to dive into uh, verse 28. And the first point is simply this. Christ conquers your destiny. Christ conquers your destiny. Look at Romans 8.28, a verse that's uh, so often spoken, sometimes kind of at the wrong time uh, for people. But, but the truth of, of this verse is absolutely astounding. He says, and we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. Wow. For those who are called according to his purpose. God says that if you love Christ, if you're called for his purpose, everything in your life at the end of the day works together for your good. Which means it works for his glory. Everything. Now, I'm going to give you a quick Greek lesson, and I'm not going to charge you anything for this Greek lesson, okay? The word that he uses here for all is the Greek word panta. Say it with me, panta. panta. Oh gosh, you're so good. Wow. Okay, so I need you to repeat after me. All means all. All means all. And that's all all means. You are now Greek scholars, okay? All means all. When he says that, that God causes all things to work together for good, he means every last thing. If you're a believer in Christ, he is going to use all of it. Now, he's just talked earlier in, this, uh, in, in these verses, verse 26 and 27, about how the Spirit helps us in our weakness to pray. And, and as we're struggling through various things, the, the Spirit gives words where we can't give words. And He's going to help us work through that. But then He says, based on all this struggle and this hardship, God is going to cause everything that touches your life at the end of the day, at the end of all things, to work together for His great glory and for your good. That. I don't know about anybody else, but that, that's crazy to me. He is going to use the thing that you've struggled with the most in your life. He's going to use the thing that, that is a hidden source of shame that you walk around with, and maybe you've walked around with it for years. God wants to even use that thing at the end of the day. To make the name of Christ gloriously appear through your life, through your life. Um, when, when I was young, don't laugh, when I was in high school, uh, I was extremely skinny. Extre like I was, I, I played basketball, I like put on my basketball uh, shirt and like I was swimming in it. I was so so thin. I, I, had, I had a lot of, uh, I dealt a lot of stuff, you know, dealt with my body image stuff because I was so, so skinny. Like I was so skinny 
that I had to run around in the shower just to get wet. I mean, I was like really, really skinny. It was bad. And, 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 and I struggled with, with, with my image of myself, right? Now, that, now, some of you are struggling with things in a much more serious way than I am. It could even be abuse that's come into your life. It could be uh, uh, sin that you have not been able to win the struggle over. Seems like 10,000 times you said, that's the last time, Lord. I'm not going to ever do that again. And then why is it that you found yourself there all over again? Saying, God, help me. You know, that thing God is going to use together for good to show off Jesus in your life. Because one day there's going to be some victory and you're not going to be able to say, look what I did at all. But you're going to say, Jesus is able. He is God. He uses, it's crazy to me that he uses all, he conquers your destiny. He's fixed the game so that everything's going to work together for his good. He's fixed it. Now, I don't want anyone leaving this place and going to Atlantic City and saying, Pastor Larry told me to do this. But imagine it this way. You're playing on a slot machine. And you know you got the little pears and the little apples and the little orange. I think you, that's what you have. That's what I heard. <laughs> I had saw it on TV one time. I'm just saying. But anyway, you're at the slot machine. You're at a million-dollar slot machine. I don't know if there's such a thing. Probably not. But you're at a million-dollar slot machine, and you sit down at it, and everything on every one of the things is an apple. So no matter what comes up, you're a winner every time. God has fixed it that way for you. Not in Atlantic City, but he's fixed it that way in your life so that everything is going to work together that you might be it might be for your good and for God's glory, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is not a promise that goes to everyone in the world. It is for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God has fixed it for you. He's fixed it. It's going to work that way. And so he goes on to say, verse 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, to theologians and Christians and people get into crazy, crazy, crazy discussions about, you know, what exactly is going on here with, with uh, foreknowing and predestining. I'm not going to get into a whole bunch of needless arguments about that. But the word there that he uses to foreknow is a word that does, it does not mean God has, has an intellectual understanding of what's about to happen. The, actual, the word that he uses uh, for foreknow is a word that comes from uh, a Hebrew word, one used in the Septuagint from a Hebrew word, yada, which means to know in such a way as to enter into relationship with. So it's the word that's used in Jeremiah 1.5 when God says to Jeremiah, uh, before uh, you were born, I knew you, and I had a call on your life as a prophet to the nations. God said, I was, I was involved intimately with your life before you were even born. 
before the foundation of the world, I was involved with you in relationship. You see, we got this idea of God because we are time-bound creatures, every last one of us. But, but God lives outside of time and is not bound by time in any way. So if I put a little dot on this wall and said that is all of time that we know, then the rest of this wall and going uh, down to South Philly and up to North Philly and all around the world, that would be God, the immensity of God. And time is just that one small dot. So God says that he foreknew, he entered into relationship with you before you were born. Before you were a, a, a gleam in daddy's eye, God says, I foreknew you. And he says, and predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. See, we struggle a lot of times because Christians get caught up in, well, who is God predestined to go to heaven? Who is it? I don't know. I'm not God. You know, Christians mess up every time when we try to step into the back room of the council of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, before the foundation of the world, figuring things out. Let God do that stuff. Leave it alone. But, but see, this doesn't say he predestined you to go to heaven one day. It says he predestined you, Christian, one who loves God, one who's called according to his purpose. He predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. He predestined you to be molded and shaped to become more and more and more like Jesus. So Christians are those who understand that I am a piece of clay that is on the potter's wheel and that God has his hands on me. He's got his hands all over me. He's shaping me. He's molding me. He's pressing me. He's working with me to make me more like him. Do you feel God's hand on your life that way? If you're a believer, you ought to. You ought to because, you know, I, I know for me, before I became a Christian, my hope was to go to heaven. I hoped I wanted to go to heaven, but I didn't really think about it all that much. But I wanted to go to heaven, and I hoped maybe I'll do enough good things to go to heaven. Maybe that I'll weigh my bad things. You know, some of you thought that way yourselves. Maybe some of you are thinking that way right now. But hoping to go to heaven based on what I've done or what I haven't done and trying to, to work out that equation. But for the believer, this is not something that we think about once in a while. It's the consuming reality of life. God is shaping you. So I can feel the press of God in my life. Do you feel it? Do you know it? Do you sometimes feel the sharp pang because sometimes we have areas that aren't quite so soft and moldable where God has to take out a chisel and a hammer and maybe he has to tick it away a little bit and then maybe sometimes a dag. This is a hard one. Here we go. Bam! And you feel that, oh, God. That's God doing that. He's conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. That he, God, uh, Christ conquers your destiny by conforming you to his image, so much so that he says here, that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He, he, you, you become an intimate family member with God. You, you're, you're part of the inner, inner, inner circle. You're brother or sister. And God's not ashamed of that. It says in another place, he's not ashamed to call us brothers, right? 
and ladies, he's not ashamed to call you sisters. We become part of the intimate fabric of the family of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about who I am, where I've come from, what I still struggle with to this day, sometimes I wonder, God, why would you want me that way? Right? But he does. And he's fully 100% committed to that in your life, to make you a family member. It's not like you know, the crazy uncle at the family reunion that no one wants to be around. God says, I want to be around you. Yeah, you're crazy. Yes, not only do you have a screw loose, but it looks like there are no screws up there at all. And maybe that's you and maybe that's me. And maybe some people look at us this way and say, you know, I, I love them, but I just need my space. But God says, no, I need you to be in my space. He invites you into the most intimate place. Brothers, sisters, the closest family that there is, he brings you in. And he says, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Justified means he's declared you not guilty. Once and for all. No matter what you've done, no matter what the charges are and how true they are, he says, those whom he called, he's also justified. And those whom he justified, now this is crazy, he also glorified. All those verses, all those verbs in verse 30 are in the past tense. So God, it says, has not only predestined you, okay, that seems past. He's called me, yeah, that, that, that could be in the past. He's justified me, yes, that could be in the past, but he's also glorified me. And he uses a past tense, it's an aorist in the Greek. He, he, what he's saying is, this is a finished fact, and nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth can ever change it. It's finished, it's done, it's completed. If you are one who fits into Romans 8, 28, who loves God, he says, I will bring you across the finish line victoriously. I don't leave anyone behind to straggle. He says, if you've been predestined and called and justified, you are also glorified. It's completed, it's done. It's something to celebrate that God has Fixed it that way. It's, it's finished. It's done. Amen. So, and, and he says, to be glorified. That word is used about 61 times in the New Testament. And almost every time, who do you think it's used about? To be glorified. It's used about Jesus or God, right? So, the, the word over and over, the word means to cause someone to have glorious greatness. But God says to you, and God says to me, if you're a believer, he says, you have been glorified. You have become one who has glorious greatness. One other time where it's not used of God specifically is in John 17, 10, where Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. You see, the fact that God is able to say, you are glorified is because of your relationship to Jesus Christ and nothing else. It's because he dwells in you and then you live in him and he lives in you that you are a vessel for God's glory 
to show off to all creation. You see, it's because of your relationship with him. So Christ conquers your destiny. You will make it uh, to the finish line to glorify him. But not only that, Christ also conquers your accusers. He conquers every accuser. Look at verse 31. He says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us. In other words, if God is favorably disposed to love us and care for us, if he is on our side, then who can be against us? Who can oppose us? Who is able to withstand us in any way? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, the answer is no one. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a question today. I need you to be honest. I'm going to give a name, and I need you to raise your hand if you know who this person is. If you were in the first service, it doesn't count. Don't raise your hand unless you knew who he was before the first service. How many know a person named Bill Wennington? Raise your hand if you know Bill Wennington. I see that hand. I see that hand. No hands over here. No hands in the balcony. I saw two hands that know who Bill Wennington is. What if I, uh, I see a third hand right over there? Just a, a little hand like this hand. I saw you, Anthony. So, so Bill Wennington, who is Bill Wennington? He's a three-time NBA championship player. You believe that? So is Larry Bird, three-time NBA championship player. Um, Charles Barkley never won a championship. Iverson never won a championship. Dr. J won one championship. That was my favorite player. But Bill Wennington is a three-time NBA championship player, but y'all don't know who he is, even those of you who follow basketball, some of you. Because, see, why is he a three-time NBA champion? Not because he was the best player in the game. He was a seven-foot uh, white guy, okay? I'll just leave it right there. Uh, <laughs> who, 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 who played... 13 years in the NBA, but a few of those years he played in the 90s in, uh, what was that city in the middle of the country? Chicago. He happened to play in Chicago um, for a few years with this other guy whose name I can't remember. Um, Bill Wennington became a championship basketball player three times, not because he was the most skillful center in the league, not because he got more rebounds or scored more points than anyone else. Um, he was certainly good enough to play in the NBA, and that's no joke. But he became a champion in the NBA because of who he played with. He played with this dude who shares my birthday, by the way, uh, who, who would play in such a way that at the end of the game, he said, I'm not going to allow this team to lose. Michael Jordan was that kind of player, right? He's like, I'm not going to allow us to lose. And it seemed like he, he knew how to will his team to actually win the game. And, and Wennington became a champion because he was associated with, on the team with, hooked up with Michael Jordan. Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, I've got good news for you. You don't have to be the best scorer, the best rebounder, the best shot blocker. You don't have to be the best defensive player. You don't have to be the one with all the credentials. You just have to be hooked up with the right one. And that one is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, if, if Michael could will a team to win, sometimes they still lost. With Jesus, he's never lost. Not once and never will lose. He cannot lose. It's rigged in his favor. So, so when, when he asked the question, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's rhetorical because it says it doesn't matter because Jesus is with us and we're with him. So in the end, we win. And then he gives, he just lays out the gospel for us in verses 32 through 34. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, he says, look, if God gave you the very best thing that has ever existed in the history of the universe, if he's given you his one and only unique son, if he's given you the gift of grace in Jesus Christ, if he didn't spare him from you, how will he not also give you everything else that you need? Christian, he is going to give you everything that you need in this world to give him glory in your life. It's, he settles the question there. And then he goes on to say, um, who shall bring any charges against God's elect? I can think of one who will definitely do that, right? Satan will do that. The name Satan itself means the accuser. Pastor E, just a couple weeks ago in the Eve Redeemed series, went through uh, uh, Genesis chapter 3, talking about uh, Satan in the garden. And, and what he does in the garden is he causes Eve and Adam to question whether or not God is holding back something from them. Right? So he does it by a series of questions, and then, and then the accusation comes, if you eat of that tree, you won't surely die. You're not going to die. For God knows that the day you eat of that tree, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. What's he saying? God is holding back something important from you. And the fact is that many of you here today think that way. In, in times of difficulty and hardship and trial, and when you don't understand what's going on, your, your mind goes back, and the accuser is saying to you, God is holding back something. And, and, and now he, he catches you in his clutches and grabs you by his throat the moment that you begin to compare yourself with others. And you think you know their story, but you have no clue what they've been through. And even if they've reached something, how they've got there and what cost it's come at. But, but he gets you in his clutches to, to, to wonder and to worry and to accuse God about holding back from you. Believers in Christ, this word says he's not holding back anything. If he did not withhold his only begotten son, he's not withholding anything else that is necessary for your life in order that Christ might be glorified. It might mean that he doesn't give you a lot of things that you want because he knows that you are going to begin to put your worth and value into those things. 
and that your confidence is going to be in those things rather than in Christ. He wants you to lean fully and wholly on Him. But Christ conquers every accuser that you have. So, so we all deal with different accusers in our lives. Some of us still hear voices from our past that accuse us, um, that you're just not good enough. You're not, you're not successful enough. Most men deal with that with father issues. Whether they've known their fathers or not, most men deal with those issues. Women deal with issues as well. We're all dealing with issues, and we feel these accusers sometimes. Um, some of the most difficult accusers are right in, in the family of God. Right in the church of God. A few weeks ago, uh, I taught one of the community, uh, covenant community classes on healthy church. That's the name of the um, class I taught. And in that cl class, I asked the class, how many in the class have been hurt deeply in the church? And just about everybody raised their hand. Now, I thought, I know some people are going to raise their hands, but just about everybody raised their hands. Just about everyone. So accusation can come from all over the place. But what the scripture is telling us in no uncertain terms is that Jesus Christ, because he is for us, none of the accusations can touch us anymore. Turn with me just for a moment to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. It's the second to the last book in the Old Testament. So if you go back to Matthew in the New Testament, just go back a few more pages and you're in Zechariah. Um, Zechariah chapter 3, it's, Zechariah is a prophet and um, he is uh, living in the time after the people of God have come back into the land after being in captivity from, uh, in Babylon for many years. And uh, Zechariah is given these different visions that he sees, prophetic visions. And chapter 3, starting at verse 1, is one of those visions. I just want to look at it for a moment. It says in chapter 3, starting at verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. This is an amazing vision that he's seen. Now, Zechariah is a prophet. Uh, Joshua here is the high priest after they come back into the land from captivity in Babylon. So they probably know each other pretty well. They probably run into each other all the time. And Joshua, because he is the high priest, has certain privileges. He's able to dress a certain way and certainly to perform his duties in, in the temple. Um, he's got to put on the priestly garments and he's like looking sharper uh, than anyone else in all of Jerusalem because he is the high priest. So this is Joshua. This is his job. He, he, the clothes come with the job, right? But, but if you look at this, it says he showed me Joshua. Now, the, the Hebrew name there is Yeshua. 
right, is Yeshua and the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Who is this angel of the Lord? This figure that we see throughout the Old Testament It's the pre-incarnate Christ. So, so uh, Yeshua, the high priest, is standing before Yeshua HaMashiach, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. So one Joshua in front of another Joshua. One high priest in front of another high priest. The lesser Joshua in front of the greater Joshua. The, the high priest who will die a few years from then and go to be with his fathers. And the high priest who will never die without beginning or ending. The high priest of our salvation. The high priest who now intercedes with us before the Father in heaven. So Joshua shows up and stands before uh, Jesus, the angel of the Lord, and Satan stands at his right hand to accuse him. Right in the presence of God Almighty. He's still going to accuse him. If you think you're going to get through this life without every type of slanderous accusation coming from without and from within, you're wrong. Accusation's always going to be here. But we just read in, in these verses in, in Romans 8 that um, if, if God is, is with us, Jesus Christ is the one who died more than that was raised. Verse 34, who's at the right hand of God. Satan here is at the right hand of God. Jesus has nudged him out. He's kicked him out. He's obliterated him. He is not at the right hand of God accusing you. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God interceding on your behalf. The picture has changed. God is at work. Where are all of your accusers? The hymn writer put it this way, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, not just some of it, not just a bunch of it, but the whole has been nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. You see, all of it has been done away with. Every single little last bit of it. Everything you've ever done, everything that you're doing now, everything you ever will do, it's all been taken care of. Where are your accusers? Jesus stands. Actually, he kneels with a woman who's brought to him who was caught in adultery in the very act. She stood condemned. Why they just brought the woman, that's another story. But, but the men are there with stones ready to stone this woman. And Jesus stoops on the ground. The only time we see Jesus, the word of God, actually writing uh, in, in, in the Bible. But he, he, he writes something on the ground. I don't know what. We don't want to speculate about that. But all of a sudden, he, he, he says to the men who say, we found, we caught this woman in the act of adultery, in the very act. The, the law says we should stone her. What do you say? Jesus writes on the ground. He doesn't say anything for a while. And then he says, let the one of you who's without sin cast the first stone. And the Bible says they began to go away. But who began to go away? The oldest ones first. Maybe they saw their name written on the ground. Maybe they saw her name next to their name. I don't know. 
I don't know. I don't know what he wrote. But from the oldest, they began to go away, and then it's just Jesus and this sinful woman. She was a sinner. She was a mess, just like you, just like me, just a filthy mess, like Joshua. You know, Zechariah saw Joshua every day. He was, he was dressed in this banging gear. Yeah, I said it, banging gear. He was looking sharp. He was the dude. He, you know, I'm not going to try to imitate how he might have walked, but Joshua, he had all this stuff going on. But when he saw him in the vision, he saw him with the eyes of heaven dressed in filthy garments, nasty garments. To the degree that you continue to be your own advocate, to the degree that you continue to plead your own case, to the degree that you continue to say, I didn't do it, I wasn't there. And you're lying when you say that. To that degree, you will continue to live in shame and guilt and fear. But to the degree that you can say, yes, it was me. But he took care of it. He is my advocate. Jesus has taken care of it. In that day, at that time, accusation won't stick anywhere. It can't stick on God's children. Last point, last point. Um, verses, starting at verse 35, Christ conquers your enemies. He conquers every enemy. Verse 35, he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he begins to list things. Shall tribulation? No. Shall distress? No. Persecution? No. He's writing to a church that's about to go through periods of martyrdom, people being killed, hung on crosses, burnt up, thrown to lions. Shall persecution? No. Or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written. And then he quotes Psalm 44, for your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says all of these hefty, weighty, difficult, hard things. Now, I want you to think about what are the hefty, weighty, difficult, hard things that either you've just gone through or you're going through right now or you may be going through pretty soon. There are hefty, weighty, difficult things. He's talking about these things. None of them will separate us from the love of God. Verse 37, no, he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. That word means we are complete victors. We are total winners. We are 100% every time. We are the conquerors. We are the winners. We are the victors. He says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, we're conquerors because of the one that we're with. Through him who loved us. For I am sure, he says, that neither death nor life now, neither death, death, if we look at it from a 
human and worldly point of view is the worst thing that can happen. Your life is snuffed out. But if you understand who you are in Jesus, then you understand that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You understand that, that, that death is not the end. Death is a graduation. And there is a graduation party in heaven that's like no party here on earth. There's no party like a Holy Ghost party in heaven when you graduate to be with Jesus. Right? So neither death, but then he says neither death nor life. Because sometimes, I don't know if, about you, but I felt like, okay, Lord, just take me now. I get that. To be absent from the, I want to be present with the Lord right now. You felt that way. Some of you might maybe feel that way today. Just take me right now, Jesus. But he says neither death nor life. Neither death nor life. All, all the junk in life, all the difficulties in life, all the disappointments in life, all the abuses in life, all, all, all the things that you're going to go through in life, he says that can't separate you either. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, the greatest powers in the heavens, good angels, bad angels, all these angels, rulers, um, those in authority, those in power, your boss that just is a pain in the neck, uh, people who grate on you, people who are over you in authority and who are abusing it. He says, neither, neither angels nor rulers, they can't separate me, um, neither things present, all the stuff that's going on now, nor things to come, nothing coming in the future. Nothing that's ever going to come down the way. Nor, high, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. No matter how high you go, no matter how deep you go. Nor anything else. He says, just in case I didn't get everything, let me throw this in. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Believers, God gives us this word for a reason. He gives us this word so that we can begin to live out of the application of the truth of the gospel. That what God has done is fixed and finished. He set you free from Every snare and trap of the enemy and nothing is able to take you out of his hand. Jesus said that in John's gospel. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Believer, you don't have to, you don't have to fight to get in anymore. He got you in. Believer, you don't have to live with guilt and shame anymore as your constant companion. Many of us, that is like the closest friend we have is our guilt, our shame. And we, 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 we have an audience every day with the accuser and we take it in and God says, no more, no more, no more. Let me close with these words. It's a song that we sing here. A lot, Christ alone. But one of the verses of the song puts it this way No guilt in life, no guilt in life, no fear in death, 
This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. That's good news. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your gospel, which is rich, for the truth of your gospel, which gives hope to every believer. Lord, we also know that there may be some here today that don't know you. And so almost everything I've said here today does not apply to their lives. Lord, I pray for the work and the power of your Holy Spirit to work in the lives of each one here, believers, to allow them to live out of the truth of the gospel more consistently. And Lord, unbelievers, draw them. Would you please?